Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators Podcast by Belay Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic world of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with athletes, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. This month, we are interviewing a member of the Salver family in honor of October being Filipino-American History Month. The Salivers began their Philam journey nearly 100 years ago in San Francisco when the patriarch of the family, Canuto Salver, immigrated via ship in 1927. He was part of the first wave of Filipino men to immigrate here called the Monong Generation. The term Monong comes from the Ilocano word for elder brother. Today, we are interviewing his daughter and my mother, Luna. Luna passes down her father's experiences as a Monong pioneering Manila town in the 1930s. Her mother was also the first Filipino-American to be recognized by the state Senate for her community activism in Soma, Pilipinas. Her efforts of promoting traditional Philippine folk arts in the Bay Area and founding the Philippine-American Cultural Foundation. Luna was also fortunate to live through the turbulent 60s when her brother, Patrick Salover, helped lead the student strikes as a core member of the Third World Liberation Front. In the 1970s, Luna was a student activist and a poet. In the 90s, Luna was a labor leader and a samba dancer under creative director Josephine Murata. Then, in the 2000s, she chose a career path to be a prolific technical writer and a spokesperson for two major Bay Area entities. In this conversation, Luna reflects on witnessing her mother make Filipino-American history in real time and how we don't always realize the historical impact of our everyday engagement. She started learning about grants and she was able to be one of the first grantees to help seniors in SOMA. She worked to help gang members at St. Patrick's in SOMA. And she also helped immigrants with their citizenship paperwork. She did their taxes. So she was really wanting to contribute to the Filipino-American community in the ways she knew how. One significant thing she did that many people aren't aware of is she worked with then-Senator Milton Marks to pass a bill allowing foreign dentists to practice in California without having to go back to dental school. So that was highly significant and something that, you know, I just kind of took for granted. I just thought, okay, that's mom. She's out in the community. She's doing her thing. And you don't really know the impact about what my mother was able to accomplish until you're older. Also in this conversation, we talk about the importance of unpacking our own family stories as part of Filipino-American History Month. Luna also talks about her relationship with my uncle and his efforts in the Third World Liberation Front. And finally, we have audio documentation of my mother saying she's proud of me. That's making history in itself. 
You can find more information on the Saliver family at patsaliver.com. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Mom. I'm very honored that you chose me to speak on Filipino-American history. Well, I think what a lot of people don't know about me, and which we're going to give more context about today and have you break it down for all of our listeners, is our family has been in San Francisco for almost 100 years. Right. I started this tradition in my first episode with Ate Allison or Dr. Allison Tintiaco Kubales, which ancestors or those who have transitioned would you like to call into this conversation today? I'm going to call on five people. Of course, my parents, Australia, Kanutu, my two brothers whom I adored, Richard and Patrick, and my good friend, Paula, because she absolutely loved you. <laughs> Paula has a special place in my heart. Paula was one of my mom's closest friends in my mom's samba years. <laughs> yes, and she was always wanting to learn, and she learned some great life lessons from you. So that's why I'm calling on Paula as well. So, Mom, October marks Filipino-American History Month, as we all know, and I wanted to interview you because, one, our family has oh, man, a really deep-rooted history here in San Francisco, but also because I feel like your parents, my grandparents, were pioneers in their time. But before we even get into all accomplishments, all of the accolades, all of the work that they both did, and even Uncle Pat. I just want to know, and the listeners need to know, what year did our family come to San Francisco and set down roots? Well, my dad came to San Francisco in 1927. So in four years, in 2027, our family will have 100 years of Filipino-American history living in the Bay Area. And it's not just a family story where one family was impacted, the accomplishments that both my father, mother, and my brother Patrick were able to achieve in their lifetime had long-ranging impacts on many Filipinos. So that's why I think when people talk about Filipino-American history and being a person who actually lived through a lot of it, <laughs> I think that I have a story that I'd love to share about our family, about Filipino-American history, and how Filipino-Americans evolved in the San Francisco Bay Area from the 1920s until the um, 1970s or even to 2023. Because what you're doing, having these podcasts to build awareness about what Filipino culture means to Filipino-Americans now in this era is meaningful. When you say he came in the 1920s, you're referring to him and his this first wave of immigration as the Monong generation. Correct. My dad was in the first wave of Monongs who jumped on ships in the Philippines and came to the United States 
for what they were hoping for a better life. And they came here to work the fields, to work in canneries, to work in the service industry. But the reality was, while they were able to have these economic opportunities, they weren't paid very well. They were forced to live in small communities. They didn't have the same rights as uh, white males did. So there was a lot of oppression, a lot of racism. And my father told me his stories of when he came here in the 20s, what it was like to live in that era. And there are a lot of immigrants who come to the United States, I would say in the 70s, 80s, and beyond, who have no idea what Filipinos went through during those terribly racist era in the United States. Yeah, our last episode, we spoke with Gail Romosanta, the writer-creator of Larry, the musical about Larry Itliong, and she talked about the Watsonville riots and how, you know, just white folks were getting into cars and hunting Filipinos to kill and murder during that time near Watsonville. And I feel like that is sort of what a lot of Filipinos went through all over the West Coast, not just in Watsonville, as far as racism and the bodily harm that they endured just trying to make a living to send money back to the Philippines to their families. Right. And in that era, it was not just the Filipino farm workers who were beaten down. It was also African-Americans in the South, the Chinese immigrants who helped build the railroads. So each one of these ethnic groups, all groups of color, face incredible racism at that time. And people may argue that little has changed when you see what's going on in the world. But I think then it was more systemic because the laws were not on our side. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because there were restrictions such as the Immigration Act of 1924 that actually made it very difficult for the Monongs to bring their wives or partners with them and start families. It was even illegal for Filipino men to have relations or relationships with white women during that time. So a lot of Monongs had to create communities like Manila Town in San Francisco where they had, you know, friends, where they had safe places for them to congregate, to eat together, to share stories, to have a life outside of just being labor. And I know Grandpa was a pioneer in that way too, right? Well, what your grandpa did that was uh, considered pioneering was... His ability to go from a dishwasher that literally made sense in an hour, like there was 31 or 41 cents per hour, to scrimping and saving and dealing whatever deals he had to do to become the first Filipino businessman in San Francisco, along with his partners, to open the Bataan Cafe, which was underneath the International Hotel. Then Manila Town was a, about a 12-block area adjacent to Chinatown, and Filipinos were forced to live in this community because it was uh, illegal to try to 
rent or own property in many places, real estate agents wouldn't sell to uh, people of color at that time. So Manila Town became this magnet for Filipino immigrants to start their lives in America. And that's where your grandpa lived, my dad, for many years. And that's where his community was. So being a restaurant owner and also eventually expanding to own the pool hall made him a hotshot in the community. And I didn't know this until I was a teenager. My dad started sharing stories of his life. You have to understand, my dad was a very quiet man. And he was 50 when I was born. So he's more like a grandpa to me. And I didn't know about these stories until I was about 17 years old. And he would sit at the kitchen table where he lived at the time, and he'd share all these memories. And I was just shocked, shocked to hear all these stories of my dad's life before he had all of us kids. My dad would talk about how if someone was giving him trouble, the cops who were on the take would take care of that person, and my dad would stand over that person's body, and people think, oh, Connie, Connie showed that guy, you know, and he built a reputation in Manila Town as being a tough guy. He showed me a picture of himself on a motorcycle wearing white suede shoes, and I'm thinking, this is my father. So I really encourage young people to interview your grandpas, your grandmas, and learn about their histories before they had children. Ask, why did they come to the United States? My dad told me he came to the United States to avoid an arranged marriage. He was not attracted to the woman that he was supposed to marry, and he jumped on a ship. First, I believe he went to Seattle, but then he ended up in San Francisco, which I'm so glad he did because San Francisco is a beautiful city, and I'm very proud to be a native San Franciscan. So listening to these stories about your grandfather and how he was the first at something made a, a big impact on me. It made our family special. You know, before I thought we were just the average immigrant family, but no, my dad did something special. One thing else I learned about him was that he taught himself how to play trap drums and he joined a big band because that was the thing back in the 30s, big bands. And they had a talent agent who was based in Utah. And this talent agent would book this band in different farm worker areas at taxi dance halls. And if you don't know what a taxi dance hall is, it's where farm workers can dance with a woman, usually a white woman. Correct. And they could dance with them for 10 cents a dance, you know, then take a ticket and for as many tickets as a farm worker could buy, that's how long he could dance with this woman. And that gave these men who weren't allowed to have families, really, or to marry white women, it gave them opportunity to feel the presence of another person, you know, to feel that intimacy, even though it was bought for 10 cents a dance. So my dad, he went from Arizona, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Southern California, and the Valley 
playing in this big band, which was called the Hawaiian Serenaders. And I asked him, why did you call yourself the Hawaiian Serenaders, Dad? You're not Hawaiian. And he said, because the white people didn't like Filipinos, he said. We would say, because there was so much racism, they had to change their identity. But the way he put it as being a soft-spoken, quiet immigrant was the white people did not like the Filipinos. And that's why we said we were Hawaiian. Did you ever talk about like stories of his days as a big band drummer? I feel like that's so cool. And I know I've seen pictures of him at his drum set and playing at these taxi halls. But now as an adult and someone who works at Ball Eye Creative supporting artists, I think back now to like, that's even being a pioneer in the Filipino community. Being an artist like that in the 1930s and getting paid to tour the U.S. and, you know, being not only a source of entertainment, but also just like providing music and community kapwa healing for these farm workers for these brown men working and laboring (laughs) all throughout the week you know just having that opportunity for them to put on a suit and feel human again that's such a good point that's such an excellent point because at that time if you were filipino man you dressed up my dad until the 70s never wore jeans when he went out of the house, he had a top coat, he wore a brim, he wore a button-down shirt, a tie, he always dressed up. And that's the same thing in that era, in the 30s and 40s, Filipino men, the farm workers, the service workers, the cannery workers, they would dress to the T's. And Latinos, too, they're very similar in their communities. They would dress to the T's to show, hey, we got class. We're classy guys. And, you know, just to have that community for one Friday or Saturday night and feel relaxed. I never thought of that way, but you're absolutely right. Because I know with my dad, he had his drum set for a few years while I was growing up. And there was always such a joy when he was playing, such immense joy. And I just feel kind of a regret that all the musical DNA went to my brothers, man. (laughs) It's like, what? The girls got different type of creative DNA, but all the musical DNA went to my brothers. Well, no, we have to give some shine to grandma because she was a very talented organist and played for almost yes. all the churches here in San Francisco. And that's a good segue to grandma and what kind of pioneer she was, because I know this podcast is only an hour already gone oh. <laughs> halfway through. So let's add some shine to Grandma Estrella and the kind of things she did to make herself a pioneer activist and a culture bearer in the community. Excellent segue. And for my mom, her talent was very cultural. So when she came here in 1954 as part of the second wave after World War II, then it was more relaxed that Filipino women could immigrate to the United States and more Filipino men that were already here started having a lot of brides come from the Philippines. Your grandpa on your dad's side, that's their story. But my mother came here 1954, and her and my dad were neighbors, and they started a relationship. She already had four children, 
from a previous marriage. My dad had three children from a previous marriage, and together they had three more. So it's like a before it was popular Brady Bunch, <laughs> Filipino style. But my mom came here, and as soon as she settled with my father, then she started teaching Filipino dance. And that was one of the first ways that she started to build awareness about Filipino culture in the San Francisco Bay Area. She would teach Filipino dance in our garage. She had students from Balboa come and learn the tinkling. And at one point, they introduced the Bay Area to the tinkling because they were on a talent show that was aired locally, and they won. Many of the students from Bal, they weren't even Filipino. <laughs> they were mixed, or my brother's best friend, Doug, he was this red-haired guy, and he's here with the bamboo sticks. <laughs> so her joy of knowing Filipino culture and sharing the Filipino dances, as well as eventually going to churches and playing the organ and organizing choirs, that was her joy, but that evolved. So she went from a very cultural community woman, and it evolved into a two-prong approach for her. In the late 60s, she created the Filipino American Cultural Foundation, where she was able to get grants and get support to bring Filipino artists from the Philippines and perform here in San Francisco. The other approach she had was to actually get involved in the community. And she got involved more than we anticipated because she started learning about grants and she was able to be one of the first grantees to help seniors in SOMA. She worked to help gang members at St. Patrick's in SOMA. And she also helped immigrants with their citizenship paperwork. She did their taxes. So she was really wanting to contribute to the Filipino-American community in the ways she knew how. And one significant thing she did that many people aren't aware of is she worked with then-Senator Milton Marks to pass a bill allowing foreign dentists to practice in California without having to go back to dental school. So that was highly significant and something that, you know, I just kind of took for granted. I just thought, okay, that's mom. She's out in the community. She's doing her thing. And you don't really know the impact about what my mother was able to accomplish until you're older and you're raising your own family and you're on your doing your own career and you think, oh my gosh, she accomplished all these things in the community while still having a family, still working full time for the postal service. Let me underscore this. She was not the typical Filipino mother. She was not the kind of mom that would be at home cooking. She did not cook. This is where we <laughs> She did not This is where cook. we both get it from. <laughs> She did not cook. I remember the first and only time grandma cooked me pancakes and they were so thin. 
then it was like eating the thinnest crepe I've ever had in my life. I was like, what is this, Grandma? <laughs> she did not No, cook. Dad was the cook. My father was the cook. And then on the days that Mom is cooking, they don't say, oh, no. <laughs> no, my dad was the cook. He had a restaurant, remember? He was a very good cook. But no, my mom was not the typical Filipino mom at all. Well before her time. And she was highly educated. She was a valedictorian, you know, when she graduated university. And, you know, before the war, took over and basically took everyone's wealth away. Her family was one of the wealthiest families in Dipolog. Yes, that's absolutely true. So she came here. Now, this is what people have to understand when, you know, they say, hey, you're Filipino, but you don't speak Tagalog. Well, mom came from a very wealthy family. She came to the United States and she had a struggle. It was like life of night and day. It's the whole gambit of coming from a very wealthy background, a very privileged background, very educated background, and then coming to the United States where you have absolutely nothing and you need to rely on getting married in order to have somebody help you raise your kids. It's a culture shock. It's very much a culture shock. And I think a lot of Filipinos who came in the 70s learned that as well. People came here as doctors, as professionals, police officers in the Philippines, and they come to the United States and they have to learn a whole new type of career yeah, because of systematic racism white supremacy they're you know dishwashers and bellhops and laborers in the field so you know you might have someone that was a doctor in manila and now they're picking grapes in the fields because of the unfair racism that was happening at the time but another thing that i wanted to point out grandma was the first filipino and i'm literally reading her handwriting on this document that she has in her her big (laughs) file of achievements. She's the first Filipina to be honored in all of America by the state Senate California legislature. And they passed a resolution in 1970 by Senator, what you said, Milton Marks. Milton Marks. Yeah, saying that grandma did all these things devoted so many years of untiring efforts to the Filipino-American community of San Francisco. And it literally lists all what you just said. And even more, like she was a board member of the Council of Churches. It talks about her time at Kearney Street in Central City. Uh, And San Francisco fondly refers to her as mom. A lot of young (laughs) Filipino, young gang members, gang, gang bangers calling her mom (laughs) so yeah it's so funny because growing up too i didn't know a lot about these things as grandma i just knew grandma as grandma owns a church in florida because by the time she was a grandmother she was a reverend she was a pastor yeah a reverend and a pastor she spent all her time on healing people and and, you know preaching the bible and talking about uh, you know the power of jesus (laughs) so i didn't know about all of her political and her uh, community activism. Right, because people evolve. And I think when you're in your 
30s, 40s, and 50s, you have more energy to give to the community. Because in your 20s, you're still trying to find yourself. You know, you're not sure about which direction you're going to go. So by the time you're in your 30s and 40s and you have the energy to organize and to know which direction you're going to go to help the community and be part of Filipino American history. And then by the time you're in your 60s or 70s, which your grandma was when you were a small child, you're more mellowed out. Your objectives and how you see life evolve and change. So I think both her and my brother Pat went from being extremely active in the 60s, which was the era for that, to totally mellowing out by the time they were in the 70s. And they were more family-oriented. So that's why the grandma you knew when she was in her 70s was not the same woman when she was in her 40s and 50s. But it doesn't discredit all the work that she did. No, yeah. definitely not. Definitely not. And and how many lives she, accomplished she a probably lot. changed with even helping pass, you know, the new law stating for dentists, especially from all over the world, that you don't have to go back to school, graduate, graduate here right. in the U.S. And so she helped mm-hmm. pass that law. And that is part of Filipino-American history. <laughs> so while I really have this sense that people are celebrating this month without the firm realization that what you're doing in the community, and I don't mean you, but what folks are doing in the community now are standing on the shoulders of people like my mom, like my dad who suffered through so much racism, and my brother Patrick, who sacrificed a lot in order to create ethnic studies. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you even say that, <laughs> we need to talk about who is Patrick Salover? Why is he your personal hero? And what contributions did he make to Filipino American history? Because we have listeners from all over the world, not just here in America. We have we just did a report today. We have a listener in Denmark. Shout out to that one listener in Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> one Filipino. Yes, we... we have listeners in London, Australia. Shout out to my cousins Australia who are probably the ones listening to me. <laughs> and and the Philippines. So for those people who are international and even people maybe in Wisconsin or New Jersey, who is Patrick Salver? Why is he so important? And the Filipinos in his era and during that time, why are they so important to Filipino American history? Patrick Salver is my older brother who was uh, about 11. My math is kind of eh, but he was 11 when I was born. So he was more like a father figure because remember my dad was 50 and my dad was probably tired <laughs> from working so hard and then all these kids came around so pat took on the role of being the father like person in the family to all of us younger sisters and brothers so it one point in the 60s. Now you have to remember, wow, the 60s was such 
a remarkable era in the United States. The civil rights movement was at full height. Feminism was on the horizon, as was the gay rights movement. People were starting to organize and protest the war in Vietnam. The world was changing, roles were changing, and there was a sense of not wanting to just sit back and let the world change or go by your eyes as a witness. There was a determination by many people to get involved and make that change happen. So when Pat drove my mom to Delano to support the farm workers' strike, he saw how the farm workers were living. And I think there was this connection between him being a teenager embarking onto college and seeing how Filipinos were treated in the fields, you know, with little pay, backbreaking work, no breaks. There's no water trucks with water bottles to help you when you're dehydrated, no medical care. And he felt that Filipinos as a group should have better opportunities. And college was the way for his generation to see that through. He wanted better economic opportunities for Filipinos, for minorities in general, and he knew that education was a pathway towards that goal. So he started going to San Francisco State, and he saw that much like the other ethnic groups in San Francisco State at the time, primarily African-American student groups, the Larasa groups, Pat saw how they were fighting for students' rights and how they were fighting for a different type of America, just like so many hundreds of other people were fighting for at that time in the, in the late 60s. So he approached the BSU. He wanted to join and be a part of that change. And they said, well, you know, maybe you should consider organizing Filipinos at San Francisco State. And, you know, BSU supports you, but maybe just like La Raza has a group, BSU has a group, maybe the Filipinos at San Francisco State should have their own autonomy. And at that time, it's not something that he said, you know what, you're right, I'm just going to start organizing people. (laughs) He was um, encouraged in the role, but he didn't see himself as this really assertive leader at first. But as the role grew on him, then he knew the necessity to create the Filipino-American cultural endeavor at San Francisco State and have that entity be part of the Third World Liberation Front who was fighting for students' rights. And one of the issues of students' rights was ethnic studies because we can't, as a society, deny the contributions that all ethnic groups have made to make the United States the superpower that it was then and it is now. 
the United States just didn't become this important capitalist country because of a few, you know, Thomas Jefferson or whomever. It was on the backs of slave labor, on the backs of Chinese labor who built the railroads that was able to connect east to west. It was built on the farm workers who helped feed America. So there's certain contributions, important, remarkable contributions that people of color have made to make the United States this superpower, this country that other immigrants want to come to. And ethnic studies was the direction that education needed to go in order for young people to learn and be proud of their ethnic background. And you have to remember that at that time, there was a lot of new ethnic pride that was evolving. People were starting to embrace their culture instead of assimilating. And our own family, I mean, my dad, he, he didn't want to teach us Tagalog because he felt he was discriminated against because of his accent, because of his brown skin, and he wanted us to assimilate. So assimilation was really poured into every cell of our beings during the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, up until the 60s when we started to have ethnic pride. When people were, you know, African-Americans were shouting black power and raising their fists, and we were raising our fists too. So it was quite an important era, but it did not come without sacrifice because of my brother's activism and his role at San Francisco State. He became a target for the FBI, and he refused to go in the draft. And it's a story that if you read the story of Muhammad Ali, who was known as Cassius Clay before he became Muhammad Ali, he was a conscientious objector. And when I went to the African-American Heritage Museum in Washington, D.C. this summer, I saw Muhammad Ali's quote about being a conscientious objector. And it was the same ideals that my brother had. But my brother was sent to prison for it. And it wasn't just because he objected against the war. It was because he was a leader that needed to be silenced. They arrested him, they put him on trial, and he, he served in prison, and it broke his spirit as an activist. That part of Filipino-American history has greatly been ignored. I mean, I wish they would name a street or an alley in San Francisco after Patrick Oliver because what he did, the sacrifice he made, I mean, he could have just said, you know, I'm not going to be a leader anymore. Let's just have PCNs. And let's not fight for ethnic studies. But look at the impact that fighting for ethnic studies has on the youth of America. In California alone, to graduate from a state university, California University, you have to take an ethnic studies class. And that was signed into law two years ago. And there are over 700 College of Ethnic Study departments all across the U.S., including Harvard University. So yeah, it's made a huge impact. So when you look at someone who went to prison for that, I mean, how many people, I don't care what race you are, 
how many people can say that they did that? And his colleagues who went on to graduate from San Francisco State, they went on to such important careers. And I feel that he regretted that his college years were cut short by imprisonment. I want to share one quote from Uncle Pat that your other brother, (laughs) your younger brother, (laughs) Tim, found from Rolling Stone magazine. So they published an article in 1972 called Letters from American Political Prisoners. And for some reason, my uncle just found this, an article from 1972. You know, there's even a picture of the article. And there's a letter from Uncle Pat in this article. And he wrote, right. by birth, I am Filipino, a native of Southeast Asia, and all too aware of the imperialistic and racist nature of the Vietnam War. I'm also aware as a human being of the nature of oppression that kills people and their culture babies, women, old men, and all. It is the same oppression that keeps third world people in the ghettos of the cities. My crime was not a violent act. It had no victims other than myself, perhaps. My crime was confronting a brutal system that denied me and others around the world the right of self-determination. I wanted to add that for context. And also just like words from Uncle Pat, directly from Uncle Pat, because echoing your sentiment that a lot of people back then might not have sacrificed their own physical being as well as their own freedom for what he believed in. But he believed and was so passionate about other people, not just Filipinos, but all folks of the majority (laughs) being seen equally because uncle pat at that time was also really christian and he felt that you know in god's eyes we are all created equal and i think that was also his driving force behind his activism let's roll back because that was a really important quote and when i said sacrifice um people stepping up to the place sacrifice He went to prison, but I will say that there were people in the 60s who did risk their physical safety when they protested. Because in the late 60s, the revolution was televised, and you would see dogs would be set on protesters. Police would hose down protesters with high pressure water hoses. And at San Francisco State, where Pat and the other students of the Third World Liberation Front and their Caucasian allies, they would do sit-ins and they would sacrifice their physical safety because back then, you know, it's not like now when you have protests and you have a line of police officers just standing there. Back then, the police were coming on horses with nightsticks flailing, beating down the students while they were just sitting there peacefully. So there were physical sacrifices people made that helped make our society the way we appreciate education and working conditions. We have it 
a lot of benefits. We have a lot of benefits because of the sacrifices that others had made in the 60s. And so I just wanted to make that statement because his sacrifice was being imprisoned, but his fellow protesters, they faced police brutality that you wouldn't see in the United States at school protests now. So that's Patrick Sellever. <laughs> that's why we think it's important to tell his story and, and not just his story, but I want to also credit grandma for inspiring him to be more active too and, and be more intertwined in the community and to also speak up for others. She actually had an impact on myself and my career choices and my activism but his example was um, so brilliant in terms of giving back to the community. Because even as a family man, the way he gave back to the community is he helped raise kids who were coming from dysfunctional families who didn't have a strong father figure in their lives. And he helped them navigate through really difficult times. And you said that you know, then he was a Christian when he was a conscientious objector. He was a Christian until the very day he died. And I think he would comment to you on his ideals of, of Christianity and spirituality, which I think impacted you. And I could see how your grandmother and your uncle have totally influenced you. I mean, you're doing this podcast. You could be doing podcasts about makeup tips or what kind of clothes to wear to the next gala. But no, you're doing podcasts about people who are impacting the Filipino community. And for that, I give you accolades. Kudos to you. Well, before we add, we got to talk a little bit about your accolades too, lady, and the work that you do, you know, pushing the Filipino American needle forward and making history or her story in your own right. Can you talk about some of the things that you did, especially I want to also say environmental justice and what you did to help our environment here in the Bay Area? Well, for 27 years, I worked for the Bay Area Quality Management District, and I was a public information officer, later a senior public information officer. And what's Stunning to me is back in the early 2000s, I would have to go out and give presentations to school children, city councils, county supervisors, service groups, faith-based groups, and we would talk about air pollution, sparing the air, and also climate change, but back then we called it global warming. And at that time, I was telling people about climate change issues and what would happen, droughts, fires, stronger storms, and talk about the causes of climate change. And I just feel like, wow, that was doing that 20 years ago. And at least more people are driving EVs. But in terms of moving the needle, even though my mentor and my boss at the time, Teresa Lee, created the Spare the Air program, I was the 
program lead for the Spare the Air Free Transit program, which helped make Spare the Air a household word here in the Bay Area. And it was a team of us, including my great friend, Michelle Torres. <laughs> but informing the public about what causes air pollution, what causes climate change, and ways that each individual can make a difference, I think aligns with what my brother was trying to do when he was at San Francisco State, getting Filipino students to realize you, one person, one individual, can make a difference in this world of ours. So even though I'm not at the Air District anymore, the Spare the Air program, I think, is very familiar to people. And you hear it just a few weeks ago, the meteorologists and all the TV channels were talking about how it was a Spare the Air Day. And I hope that people actually do change their behavior on that day because uh, we all have a responsibility to protect the planet. Each and every individual, every one of us can make a choice to improve the environment and to protect it. And you also made history <laughs> as an artist yourself and creative. You danced for many decades. I was on the sidelines handing you water <laughs> in different <laughs> parades and carnival <laughs> performances. Can you talk a little bit about your time as a dancer? Well, I always loved to dance, even from the age of three. I loved to dance, but we couldn't afford professional training. So I was more of a, you know, freestyler. But in 1991, I decided, after watching so many San Francisco carnivals, to actually learn how to dance samba and uh, participate in the carnival as a dancer. And I went with my really good friend, Eva Martinez, at the time, and we took lessons. It took 18 months for me to learn how to do samba well. But about three years later, I was asked to join the performing company, and so I performed in every major venue in Northern California. I performed on stage with Carlos Santana, including the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. And we were the first big show after the bombing that had occurred there. So I was a little nervous, but we performed in front of about 40, 45,000 people. And the amazing thing about that is when I was a teenager, in all my teenage angst, I would go to, to my brother Pat's room and put on his headphones and listen to Santana records. And I would daydream that I was dancing in front of tens of thousands of people on the stage with Carlos Santana. And that was like my daydream to get through those troubling teenage years. So the first time I performed with him, which was at Willie Brown's inaugural in 1996, near Pier 39. It was freezing. It was February. It was so cold. <laughs> but when I was backstage and I heard the first chords of Europa, and I looked up at the sky and saw the stars, I just started to cry. Because all my childhood dreams came true in that one night. So that's where I leave folks with, is one... Whatever you set out to do, it can happen. You just have to make it happen. Two, if you're a young person, find out why your parents or grandparents emigrated to 
the United States and learn about them, learn their history so that you could be part of Filipino American history here in the United States. And three, always appreciate the people you love. Even if sometimes, you know, you don't get along in certain eras, what they have accomplished in their lives is something to be proud of. And Nicole, I am proud of you. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> My mother's proud of me. I'm keeping this episode forever. No, this is a great plug because I, Nicole, Abelai Creative, actually started a youth podcast program called Unsung Heroes. You what? We, we do. We teach young high Perfect. schoolers ages, you know, um, ninth grade to 12th grade how to start their own podcast like we do here, how to interview people, how to do the research, how to use the equipment, how to edit nice. each episode. And so we just opened up our scholarship again for 2024. So next summer is when the program begins. We accept about 10 to 20 students to be in this summer podcast program. Oh, that's awesome. And we really encourage youth to interview their family so that they can undertake their own family oral history projects because I think it's crucial for every Filipino to have some kind of understanding of their origins of their family history you know personally I I knew all these stories not all of them I knew a lot of them you know spoken by you by grandma by uncle Pat but it actually wasn't until more recently during the pandemic when I literally found a file folder. I have it right here in front of me. A file folder of grandma's letters. And I found all this other history that I didn't know. Like our great, 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 great ancestor was a Muslim chieftain named Datu Biru. Did you know this, mom? Yes, but I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes when they talk about our history in the... In the Philippines, I'm like, uh-huh. Well, okay. there's Alrighty. no, it's, I found it on Ancestry.com too. <laughs> but you know, that's the interesting thing about Philam History Month is people can learn about Filipino history, but also learn about Filipino American history, listening to my dad's stories, living through it through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and up till now, I feel that we could still make history. We currently are. And I think that's why it's so important for the youth today. And even folks that aren't in high school, you know, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> not in high school. And I just started this podcast this year <laughs> to interview the people that mean something in their lives, to interview their family members, interview other Filipinos in their community, right. in their Kapwa, and, you know, get to know the people that, have been here like you said we are standing on the shoulders on the shoulders of, of those exactly before us. and we get to honor them and not only honor them but know their stories it's so important for us because we don't see these stories in mainstream media we don't hear these stories on npr we don't read about these stories in american textbooks history books and so rarely do we get to see these stories in movies so we should be taking this work for ourselves. Last question, because this podcast is really a love letter 
to my son, what is something that you want to leave for the younger generation and your grandson when he listens to this episode when he's older? May I read a poem that I wrote in 2020? Of course. This poem is entitled 2020, 1970, 1920. Traversing the trails on Bernal Heights Hill, I hear the heartbeat of my San Francisco youth. Wawan Ko. Somewhere in the mission below this summit and underneath 2020 summer smoke-filled skies, a seasoned conguero is slapping the skin of his, her, their drum in rhythmic phrases that expand and contract. Wawanko brings me back to days long lived in my city long loved. 1970, the heartbeat of San Francisco resonated from Dolores Park benches to Aquatic Cove bleachers south to the concrete steps at Ocean Beach, while brown-skinned youth of every hue, the descendants from every colonized country, gathered to drum, to dance, to listen, to learn. We embraced self-determination as we ripped away the tethers of assimilation. No COVID to lock us down or lightning ignited fires to smoke us out. And the only brighter blaze was the passion in our hearts. The city's golden days were decades before the gentrification by screen-addicted hipsters. The best days in San Francisco was when the city was a brighter, radiant beacon, even more brilliant than the glow that attracted Manong's 50 years before. Salamat Po, 1920. Heads bowed to Manong's who pioneered Manila Town. The heartbeat of their life was a harmony of billiard balls colliding, the hiss of pork frying, the cadence of dialects from home reverberating through the halls of the I Hotel. Restricted, excluded, segregated. Opportunities were beyond Monong's stretched fingertips. For them, success became a lifetime away. Not theirs, but ours because their sacrifices evolved into our successes, enabling boomers to thrive and prosper in the golden era of San Francisco. Now, the only echoic memory louder than my youthful Wawanko heartbeat is a salamatpo gratitude resonating in my soul. Yes, queen. <laughs> Thank you, Mom, for being on my podcast on the Cultural Cultivators podcast by Belay Creative. Thank you for, you know, giving so much history and history lessons and stories for this Filipino-American History Month. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I'll see you in a minute because we're both recording at my house. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Remember... Talk to your elders. Learn about them. You'll be so surprised. Yes. Yes. Respect. Respect. And happy Filipino American History Month, everyone. Enjoy all the festivities and all the time together with your kapwa.
Learning about Filipino-American history offers a chance to understand the struggles and triumphs of those who paved the way for us here in the U.S. And learning about their experiences with immigration, the labor movements, and civil rights activism is a source of inspiration and empowerment not only for the present generation, but all generations. Exploring our history fosters a stronger sense of identity and belonging, providing a deeper connection to our own roots. And by recognizing the contributions and sacrifices of Filipino Americans who came before us, we not only honor their legacy, but we also gain the lessons that can inform our path forward, promoting solidarity, kapwa, resiliency, and progress within our community. I think the conversation today shows that interviewing our elders fosters a deep sense of cultural identity, allowing us to connect with our roots and appreciate the rich tapestry of victories and values that shaped our families and even communities. I've also learned by interviewing my mom that this knowledge helps strengthen our own family bond. And I encourage the younger generation, heck, even every generation, to engage in oral history projects and have meaningful conversations with our elders. Because a strong sense of heritage empowers Filipinos from all over the world to preserve and share their unique stories, contributing to a greater appreciation for the diverse narratives that make up our own cultural mosaic. Author Machona Diliwayo said, it is in our roots, not the branches, that a tree's greatest strength lies. If a tree has strong roots, not even the strongest hands can pluck it from where it stands. Well, I Creative started a program to teach youth in the Bay Area how to do just that with our Unsung Heroes podcast program. We are giving high school youth the opportunity to attend a summer series of eight storytelling and podcast workshops where teens can learn how to interview, research, edit, and even produce their very own podcast. You can find out more information about our Unsung Heroes podcast summer program and even apply for a full scholarship at belaycreative.org. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Salover. You can follow me on Instagram at Kindred Kapwa. This podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Belay Creative and is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at belaycreative.org.